welcome to Listening Beyond, a podcast of the School of Community and Public Affairs at Concordia University in Georgiague, Montreal. Bonjour et bienvenue à Listening Beyond, a balado de l'école en affaires publiques et communautaires. Before we begin, we acknowledge that Concordia University is located on unceded Indigenous lands. The Kanyankehaka Nation is recognized as the custodians of the land and waters on which we gather today. Jojage is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. Today, it is home to diverse populations of Indigenous and other peoples. We respect the continued connection with the past, present, and future in our ongoing relationships with Indigenous and other peoples within the Montreal community. this episode, we talked to Alicia Delguisto Enos. She's a journalist, um, very active in feminist issues. She uses her access to the media to be able to speak against um, violence towards women and justices towards women in the workplace and um, gender-based violence. This episode was created and produced by Audrey and Veronica. Uh, at least on my end, uh, I think activists come in different in different styles and with different backgrounds, and uh, you can't really pinpoint something on it, right? So, um, mm-hmm. off maybe you can tell us what your vision of what you think an activist is. Um, mm-hmm. What what does that ring for you? Yeah, um, an activist like I feel like anyone who's doing the right thing consistently even when it's difficult and they're willing to be visible as doing the right thing in that space is going to be an activist because um there are so many like there's so many rules and there's so many laws and there's so many things that like determine what's right and what's wrong in our society like on paper but then at a societal level those aren't really acted on Um, the status quo that's existed for like decades or even generations is kind of what stays fixed at a societal level. Um, so you need people really on the ground that are going to mediate between how the rules are changing on paper and what's actually happening and push back against the forces that are trying to maintain the status quo. And so anyone that's doing that and being that ends up, I think, occupying a kind of activist appearance and uh and space in society yeah that's really nice i feel like you have a a good framework for it is this something that started out um early in your life like what got you started with uh wanting to kind of spread word against injustice and these type of things um you know it's funny because i my parents are both like very there's right and there's wrong and when something's happening that's wrong do something about it and that was just normal like I I didn't understand why they really hammered it home so much when I was a kid Um, they would always say you know you live by your word if you say you're going to do something you do it you know if you say you're going to be somewhere you be there like they were really adamant about this and for me it's like it's a very obvious path right obviously it's like the shortest distance between two points like be who you say you are, do what you say you'll do. You really have to be trained into a version of a person that has all this distortion and congestion between what they say and what they actually do. And if you're not receiving that training, you're just kind of operating in a fairly linear way. And the way I grew up and the way my parents were, you just do the right thing, even if it's 
difficult or challenging or you really have no benefit, you know, to doing the right thing. You just do it because it is the right thing, especially if you're seeing someone being targeted for any kind of harassment or abuse, or you see someone who's abusing power, like, take your shot, go for it. Like you tell them off, you know, you stand up for the person. And my dad would like come home with like anecdotes of things that had happened during his day where he told this person off or did that. Or my mom, I remember, I remember being in the passenger seat, I'm like 12 years old and she's chasing down a police car because the police officers just did an illegal move to get to the donut shop. Like there was literally a Dunkin' Donuts off like St. Charles Boulevard in the West Island where I grew up and the police officers went through a red light to get into the parking lot. To, you know, and then they just parked and like, yeah, and we can do that because we're police. My mom chased them down, got out of the car and started yelling at them because they're supposed to be like, you know, moral, you know, uh, spokespeople for society and they were abusing their position. Like, so this is just my understanding of like what's normal. And then like, I kind of go out into the world like on my own and I'm going to university and I have my little jobs and, you know, I'm taking public transit and I'm constantly in these weirdo environments with people who are doing the wrong thing and abusing people and then good people nice people are just looking the other way and allowing it to happen and it's just like oh no (laughs) you know I'm kind of carrying forward this uh just cellular understanding of how things are supposed to go and even if there's kind of conflict inherent or discomfort that comes with that like do the right thing you have to like you just you just have to absolutely and then when we when you talk a little bit about your career um, and your education um can you give me some background and how that falls or fell into what you're telling me about you know your parents and and their inspiration for you and doing the right thing yeah, I mean, my um, my undergrad was in creative writing, um, storytelling, writing. I'm a writer. I'm passionate about that. Um, and I was looking at journalism um, as something that I wanted to do once I had my like real real good understanding of how to communicate stories. Um, and when I went into my undergrad, this was before the economic crash of like 2007, 2008, where I think you could have had soft skills and still had access to a decent job and learned things on the job. So it was accessible when I started my undergrad that I would get this English degree and then I would be able to start working my way up in journalism. Um, and then by the time I graduated, the, the crash had happened where basically like all those entry level jobs sort of disappeared and they became unpaid internships. And then the mid senior jobs suddenly got downgraded to entry level. So you needed like five to seven years experience to even get an entry level job. So suddenly like just naturally going directly into journalism was not gonna be possible. So I spent a few years in the workforce um, working different jobs where I was seeing a lot of things happening that I really couldn't do anything about. And I really felt like journalists or the government or the larger society would have been able to do something about some of these injustices, but like like big things that were going on, but like in a hush-hush kind of way, um, further made me want to go into journalism so that I could do something because I didn't understand why like some of these larger issues weren't um, being addressed, you know, and were somehow kept in the dark. So I went back to school after a few years in the workforce and went in to get a journalism diploma so I could get like the hard skills that um, would would make me a good candidate for one of these jobs. And, uh, and then I kind of took it from there. And um, when you 
look at journalism, how is that for you a, um, a tool of activism when you look at yeah. that, that medium? I mean, I, like everyone, when it comes to shifting society and bringing it to a better place, I think everyone's kind of mediating between their place in society, their aptitudes, their abilities, and where they could be like the most powerful and make the most change happen. And for some people, I think it's a matter of presenting a completely different way of doing things and building new structures that are better structures. And for me, for some reason, I think based on my background, based on, you know, my family and, and uh, the, the, the set points that I have and the spaces that I can navigate quite easily, I felt as though really getting into the larger structures that are already existing and trying to identify weaknesses to sort of change or slow down um, or rectify some of the things going wrong in the larger structures was going to be one of the places where I was going to be most effective doing that. There's something about when something appears in mainstream media that legitimizes it as something that's really happening. And people can see themselves in that mainstream coverage and feel as though everyone is on their side and they're being seen. And what's happening to them is like universally recognizable as wrong. And so there are different spaces where people can, you know, speak to their experiences and put them out there, but there is just something very powerful about mainstream media coverage, which really um, I feel, and this might not be the general sentiment, you know, within society, but I feel for a lot of people in society, there is something legitimizing about having your story appear in mainstream media and having any injustice you're suffering be called out by that structure that's in place to hold other power structures accountable. Um, so that was one of the reasons why I thought, okay, journalism is a good place for me to not only help individuals, but groups and, you know, hold powerful people and powerful structures accountable for the things they're getting away with. Um, I felt like that was a place where I could be like most useful. Yeah, I really like that. Um, I think media for sure um, allows us to keep checks and balances, you know, in a way that within the government is very difficult to do. Um, can we take it back and tell us a little bit about one of your first big stories that you covered and um, how how that was like as like, you know, maybe a not beginner, but starting off in, in your career? It was in all directions. I think just over time, over the course of my entire career, there's been like quite a few things in the direction of feminism and women's rights. The things that's like a bit frustrating um, when it comes to writing about gender issues about women is it's not a new story it's not new you know it's something that everyone is well aware of and they're exhausted at how pervasive sexism and like gender-based violence and the issues women face happen to be and it's so not new that it's hard to really make a case for why these stories should be appearing in the news at all and it's extremely frustrating unless something very landmark happens or there's like this huge community protesting over like a specific thing. If it's just the everyday stories of completely unacceptable abuse and harassment and gatekeeping and barriers that women are facing, it's not news. And, and, and the fact that it's not appearing in the news almost adds to the silence that these behaviors are allowed to exist in. So 
some of the stories that I'm very proud of are did not make get like millions of views, you know, and they didn't make waves. But the fact that I was even able in a position of like respect within journalism and within my like newsroom to be able to say, I want to cover this and I'm going to cover this and be able to find like those little hooks that I could use to sell it to editorial leadership as to why they should give me the time to cover this, you know, that makes me proud. And some of those, and as they relate to feminism, I've done um, work around women in STEM fields um, women in science, technology, engineering, and math. I, I was working at UNESCO a few years ago in their communications department as they were working to try to figure out, um, it's a project called Saga, and they were working with statistics to try to get to the bottom of why do so many women study STEM at the lower levels, like at the, in university in a bachelor degree, there are so many women. And then when you go to the higher levels, like masters, there's fewer women. And then in the workforce, there's fewer. And then when you get to leadership positions in those fields, there's almost none. What happened? We call it the leaky pipeline. You know, uh, people who study it because it's like, there's this pipeline, there's all these women at the beginning, and then they're all falling through the cracks somehow. What's going on? How do I identify what's going on? How do we stop things, you know, that are, that are causing them to drop out of the workforce and drop out of these careers? And so having worked with those teams at UNESCO, I kind of already had the ground floor of where these conversations were. So when I was working in journalism, and there are a lot of women at Concordia that are studying in these fields, and being able to pitch stories when they were being disregarded, you know, by their instructors, and they were facing barriers, and being able to turn those pieces, um, like into digital pieces, and then having some of the more feminist um, TV reporters springboard off that coverage to turn it into TV stories as well. And um, really just make some noise about the fact that this is happening. Just women in STEM is something that I've kind of gone after, um, but also uh, women I, I find early in, in their career end up in the same position. And I've done stories about women at internships, you know, workplace harassment, financial abuse. Um, there's a lot going on and it's not discussed. Um, and women themselves who are in these situations will blame themselves. They don't know how to flag it. Anyone they flag it to ends up being just another barrier. Um, so I've done a lot of work when it comes to trying to get women treated properly. You know, it makes me think of um, community, you know, and how maybe as women we usually like need you know some type of support that we don't get necessarily in the workplace how does community affect your work how, how does that come into play when when you're working on something mm -hmm. I mean it's it's so um bolstering to have solidarity from other women um, or especially men, like to be honest, like whenever I have had, and sometimes it's women that are quite sexist, to have people who are like, what's happening is wrong, this is ridiculous, you know, and then, oh, okay, right? And if it's a woman, that's great. If it's a man, like that's even better because like they're so outside of the conversations and if they're seeing it through their lens of what they would consider to be acceptable behavior or unacceptable and they're saying, well, this is only happening to you because you're a woman and you just like, oh, it's a level of, just snaps you into place about what what's real and what isn't and that collective gaslight that like women are constantly under about like how they deserve to be treated just like disappears as soon as a man says well this is only happening to you because you're a woman you know so community is pretty important and that can be 
the people you respect where you work. It could be your friends. Um, it's not everyone you care about because a lot of people, they have ways of adapting to the constant stress of being put in these situations where their ways of adapting sometimes end up being looking the other way, pushing it down, blaming themselves, trying to just get along, you know? And if you go having this sort of like, oh, poor you, you know, like emotional support. And it's like, you know, emotional support is fine, but typically if you're at the point where you're talking about this thing and you're like frustrated about something, it's not emotional support you want. It's like actual support to get things done, to make things change. Um, and so not everyone who's in your community might necessarily be a good place to go as you're trying to bounce ideas off of someone. You have to really look at, are they someone that would do something or are they someone that would tolerate this kind of behavior and what do they think about it, you know? And so in that case, what is some of the advice you would give to uh, someone that is starting out um, in similar work and is just trying to get their word out there? Mm -hmm. um, similar work as in like uh, helping women or similar work as in journalism? Yeah, for instance, someone that is uh, experiencing injustice um, in their workplace or at school, um, how, how, what advice would you give them if they want to speak out, but maybe they don't know where to start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things I would definitely advice. Uh, things happen on paper a lot sooner than they happen in society. And um, when you seek justice on something or advice or try to flag something, the most obvious courses of action and people who should be helping you and organizations that should be helping you are where you're going to unfortunately oftentimes encounter many blocks, many, many blocks to actually getting anything done. Um, and you kind of, um, to go through like kind of the side door or the back door or like the open window, you don't want to go through the front door when it comes to approaching these things, because that's where you're going to be meeting like all of the resistance and they're going to be really nice and they're going to be really understanding. And at the end of the day, things are just going to continue exactly as they were. So in the world of work, there's like this new mantra of like, HR is not your friend. Like if you're being harassed, and you think HR, with who's, it's their job to help you and to manage these things, they're actually just going to try to minimize what's happening to you and keep you quiet and make the problem go away so it doesn't disrupt the workflow. So they should be doing something, they're responsible for doing something, but they actually just end up having like a whole template of, you know, how they're going to respond to you to make sure the status quo is maintained you know, and the problem just goes away um, without actually taking action against the person who's causing the problem. So in that same way, a lot of the resources that you might turn to if you're a student or you're, you know, uh, on, in the workplace, um, they're not necessarily, they're, they're going to seem like they're there to help you and they're going to be very understanding and, and consoling in that, but they're not necessarily in a position to. So that's where you have to start exploring what your rights are legally what your what recourse you have and my advice is typically go to the person or the group that has game right and like no reason why they would try to protect the person or the situation which is abusing you or others and i'm going to try to protect you know the status quo and also have something to lose if you can find the people that have something to lose if something has been flagged to them and nothing's been done and who also don't have an interest in protecting the person or the group, you know, that uh, is doing the abusing.
So if you're in a situation that legally is, is something is going desperately wrong, you might be inclined to call the police. Good, in, good. It seems like if something, you know, you would call the police and you would say, this person is doing this and I feel really threatened and I don't know what to do and whatever. Well, the police officer that you get on the phone doesn't necessarily want to do all this paperwork, you know, off something that could be nothing. And he's going to try to like, get you off the phone and convince you that it's nothing and there's nothing you can do. And I had these kinds of experiences when I was in my early twenties, you know, and, um, and you just go, Oh, well, I guess if he's acting like there's nothing he can do, I guess there's nothing that can be done. I guess I'll just never mind, you know? And so you go on the direct path and you end up with these sort of ways of getting rid of you that are just like interwoven through that. And then you go, okay, well, that's not going to work. So let me go to the free legal clinic. Like it's their responsibility to tell me exactly what the law is and how to arm myself against what's happening and how to sort of strong arm the police to force them to file the report because like I have like all the information I need and I'm going to tell them that they're going to do their job and they're not going to gaslight me and pretend that it's not their job at all to keep me safe, you know? Like you kind of have to position yourself where you're not asking for help. You're telling people that they're going to help you because you've already kind of done their job for them. And now you just need them to get involved at the level where that creates a web of protection around you. So the obvious paths that you could take to flag certain things, like if it's a coworker, you might flag it to their boss. Well, their boss might not really be particularly interested in going head to head with this coworker of yours. And they might just try to tell you how you can manage the situation better, you know? So it's like, it's the obvious way, but it's also the person who might not be inclined to help you for their own reasons. So you might have to go to, sometimes there are watchdog groups, depending on what company you work for that you can go to. Sometimes it's the union, you know, the groups that are accountable, but also without feeling like they are losing something, it never ends. So you really have to get comfortable, like going through all the different paths to, you know, um, flag these things, get justice, nip it in the bud. If not for yourself, for anyone else who might be affected in the future, because when it comes to people targeting other, other people for this kind of harassment based on their gender or their race or anything else, it's, it's just certain people who are doing it repeatedly. For all the people who are affected, it's not like equal. It's not like for this number of women who are sexually assaulted, it's the same number of men that have done it. It's literally just a few that do it repeated. Just like it needs to, if you, if you spot someone who's chronically doing this, like it needs to be taken care of. Even if like, you know that you'll be okay, like you flagged it and whatever, and everyone knows like to stay away from you and you're going to be safe. You have to take care of it just to make sure they know they're not allowed to get away with this anymore. Um, so yeah, it, it never ends. <laughs> no, I definitely appreciate your so many, you know, instances as women where like we've been out and there's always something, always something that needs to be said, needs to be done. We can never get away from it. Um, And, you know, I've definitely gone through uh, experiences where, especially in your home and you don't feel safe and somebody's trying to come in and, and take that space from you, um, it, it's really disempowering. Um, I don't know if maybe you want to share some, uh, like, resources that you've come across, um, uh, you know, in your career that, that you can point to where victims can go to and maybe not go through this process alone. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, when it comes to support groups and that, you will find a lot of support groups. Um, definitely the Montreal Assault Prevention Center, I would say, um, take one of their courses, take one of their self-defense courses. Like, I think the self-defense course I took when I was in my early 20s, um, a lot of it was sitting around in a circle and just us talking about our experiences and like women would talk about their personal experiences, which were shocking and horrific and also experiences of women that they knew. And like the, the, one of the main problems is that we don't know what to do when we're in one of these horrible situations. We kind of just freeze and it, we're so shocked this is even happening, right? Because you're trained to believe that if you do everything right, you won't end up in these situations. So you work so hard to do everything right to not end up in these situations. Then when you're in one, you're like, what did I do wrong? What can I do differently? You know, and especially when you're younger, you still believe that. And then you get to my age and you're like, oh my, like there's, <laughs> it's just, there's nothing you can do or not do, right? So. Um, the Montreal Assault Prevention Center, like, especially the instructor, there are some impossible situations where it's literally like, you can just scream at the top of your lungs. If somebody's behaving in a way that makes you really uncomfortable and makes everyone around you really uncomfortable, it's like, just start screaming. They'll get so scared that they've been like, they don't, that like, if this is being like turned into a whole thing, they'll stop whatever they're doing and they'll just run away. And then you'll be okay. You won't have to deal with the stress of witnessing whatever's going on anymore. And it's like, oh, I didn't think of that. I didn't know I could just stand on a street corner and scream if I saw like a man being like really aggressive with his girlfriend or whatever. And just no one would hold that against me. People would just be like, yeah, you did something. Now it's over. We don't have to all watch that horrible thing play out. Um, so that's a really great resource. I would say like anyone can go there and take one of their courses. And um, and also it helps empower you to kind of understand like what you can do if you're in a really like difficult situation, like particularly viscerally difficult. Um, but beyond that, I mean, the Department of Justice website has a lot of information um, for what's like the law, like the actual law in Canada right now. And um, you can get some really good information there. Um, and then there are free legal clinics. I would absolutely, there's a, a, a network called Kevac that you can go to and they have lawyers and they're paid by the government. And um, for what I'm going through, like I left a message, they called me back this morning and I, I gave them some information and now a lawyer is gonna call me back that specializes in the thing that I'm going through. And they're gonna tell me exactly what documents I need before I go file the police report to make sure the police take it seriously and the investigation has a good shot of, you know, um, getting this all done. So those free uh, legal clinics are great. I think at the university level, you're, there are probably quite a few resources that you, um, you know, that you have access to. So I'd say Concordia is a really good spot. Um, and you have really passionate people that work there that are going to be able to help you. It's like an amazing little city within a city. When I was there, that's how it felt. Um, sure. and so there are, yeah, there are a lot of people that are going to support you there. And even when you're like out in the regular world, like there are a lot of support networks. Career right now, who are those people that you turn to? How did you meet them? And how do you keep those connections and foster them so that you can really rely on them later on? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think is super important is um, just show up to your own life every day, a good person, a hardworking person, um, someone that people can count on and make other people look good, like really identify who the good people are around you who are also like you working hard and have like a good moral compass and that you believe in. And um, I find that most like out of a hundred people that you could study with or, or work with, you might find like 
two or three that you're like, these people are amazing. These people like are part of like my team, you know, and I'm going to be able to support them. And I find that um, the people that I go to for support and for help or that I would go to as a reference or, you know, um, they're people that I help, you know, and that could be people that are like significantly further along in their career than I am um, or they weren't as far along and I helped bring them in, you know, to places that I was working and put in a good word and like lobbied for them getting a job or an internship. And like, now I can use them as a reference and say, Hey, you know how I work. Cause we worked together after I, you know, helped you. Um, and so without like, putting it that bluntly, but like, these are people that are always going to want to support me because of how I supported them. So it's like, you kind of create this network by being that thing for other people. But, um, there are definitely people who are like, They've got, they're 20 years older than me. Like they were significantly further along in their career. And um, like, for instance, one of the people that helped me throughout my career um, was one of my journalism professors when I was at Concordia. He was, uh, I, when I went into journalism school, I had already been in the workforce for a few years and I knew how difficult it was. And I was like, I got to do everything at the same time. You know, I'm going to have to get straight A's and I'm going to have to be an editor at the student newspaper and I'm going to volunteer at the radio station and the TV station and I'm going freelance and I'm going to apply for the bursaries and I'm going to apply for the internships and I'm going to be really nice to the teachers and chat with them after class so they really know my name and I'm going to do all of the things in all of the directions and I went months and months without even getting like a Sunday afternoon off to just sip coffee and read a book I was non-stop it's really it's a it's a slog it's a really long road to get to anywhere that you would want to be right and um, but people are to get great satisfaction for helping someone that they know is going to really at least do everything in their power to get there and be a good positive you know force in the world so if you can just show up to your own life as that and make it clear in what you do um, not how you behave or how you speak but literally what you do you bring a lot of uh, positive energy your way and, you know, turn some possibly powerful people into like ambassadors for why you deserve certain roles. If you have done it, you can now say you've done it and you can now have access to a role where they'll pay you to do it. So it's really important to just, again, take every opportunity you can, especially when you're in school where you have so many opportunities to really strut yourself stuff in different directions, um, because then you can leverage that um, to get paid work in that direction. So yeah, I mean, just showing up consistently as being the person people could count on led to me being offered a bunch of opportunities to learn and to grow, you know, in a safe space and then be able Yeah, definitely. As a hopeful student, I can definitely appreciate this. It's very admirable. Um, can you tell me a little bit about burnout? Have you ever experienced burnout? Um, what do you do? You know, when it happens, how do you get yourself like, how far do you want to go? Because as you might have guessed from the reply to the previous question, where I just told you that I didn't get a day off in months and I was doing all the things in all the directions, I sort of established a, a way of working, which is pretty extreme. And that became my version of normal, um, which you think, you know, um, if you can manage the emotional and psychological strain of uh, that being your version of normal, you can kind of push through. And after many years, my body started disagreeing with me 
And when your body starts disagreeing with you that this is something that you can keep putting yourself through, um, it becomes a little bit complicated. So burnout, yeah, I would say I've been through burnout a few times. It's something that a lot of journalists go through. Journalists will typically, doesn't matter, I mean, I don't know if it's a Montreal market thing, but in the Montreal market, journalists will typically disappear for a few weeks or a few months, pretty commonly in every newsroom. And it's not really talked about a lot. It's just, that's that's the pace of the work that we're, we're doing. And there are a lot of things that have happened in journalism in the past few decades that have made the pace of the work so crushing and impossible to really manage on the day-to-day. It's like just constantly, constantly, constantly. And I think the way it is, and also the way I approach it, and also like while I was working, I always am working, well, not always, like I'm not a machine, but I do oftentimes nights and weekends to help people like get publicity or get media coverage. You know, there are a lot of things that I've done that I don't have my name on um, because I've sort of done it just to help other people and other causes get their their uh, recognition in the media. So like working with other groups and individuals that have a story that they need told and like interviewing them and, you know, writing their story in an email as though it were a first person and then finding the email addresses of like the journalists and the newsrooms that would run with their story and then telling them when to send this email and when to send a you know a follow-up and like I'm just constantly even though there's journalism which is very stressful there's also like my general approach to just constantly trying to make the world a better place in any way I see I can um and so it's led to yeah at a certain point like burnout which is you know it's not like just this exhaustion and this sort of feeling of, oh, I don't know if I want to keep doing this. It's like on a physical level, like feeling dizzy, you know, not being able to digest food properly, never mind sleep issues and like that kind of the fight or flight chemicals that your body will, your, your brain will push out and it'll affect like the functioning of your different organs and your whole body over time, like you can deal with those fight or flight chemicals for a period, like everyone gets energized by it. And you know, you can have a project and you can work really hard and that's fine. The problem is when it's your entire life and it's every day and every week, every month and every year. And this is where a lot of people that I've worked with have had not only just periods of burnout where they sort of disappear from view, you know, and it's not a vacation, but no one's talking about why they've just disappeared for a few weeks or a few months, then they come back. And then they end up with these like long-standing health issues, right? These long-standing stress-related health issues of inflammation and burning and pain. And they're constantly trying to manage the symptoms of these health issues that come directly from stress at a really high level for a really long time. Um, So I have dealt with that. And I would say the last time I dealt with like some pretty serious burnout issues and had to go to the doctor and I really thought I had like a thyroid issue. I didn't understand why my body was doing all this wacky stuff. You know, I couldn't get to the bottom of it. And when I described things to her and what I was feeling and and what had been happening. And then she asked me a little bit about my job and she's like, how many days vacation a year do you get? She was like, oh, okay, no, this is burnout, right? And then she started coming up with a treatment plan for that. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it's like, okay, I need to kind of look more at communications work so I can have a more, I mean, stress. Yes, I get that. But at least it's not, it's, it's a more of a nine to five with overtime sometimes, whereas journalism, again, one of the things that kind of furthered the, um, the burnout is like some of those shifts start at five in the morning, 
They can go until midnight. You know, you can be working 10 days straight. You know, if there's a big news story, it's going to be round the clock, basically. Like it is just an assault on your physical body. And without the number of vacation days to sort of recalibrate, I would end up taking unpaid time off, literally just so I could do nothing and try to recalibrate because I didn't even have the energy to like take a vacation. Like I'm literally taking unpaid time just to manage the extreme stress and its impact on my body. So this is something that it's like, it's really tough because there are some environments that just, they are what they are and it'll take a long time for them to shift, but definitely keep an eye on your supervisors, on the people who've been there a really long time and look at the environment they're in and be like, do I want to be that person? Do I want to be in that life? And typically once I get to a point where I'm like, okay, anyone who's working above me, I do not want their life. <laughs> I do not, I do not want to be that person. So I'm going to have to move on. Right. As comfortable as I am, as great as things are here, like I, yeah, I don't want, I don't want to get further into this energy where I'm just going to have like this kind of borrowed life, even if what I'm doing is valuable. I think if I'm deeply diminished as a human being because of the um, structure that I'm in, then I'm just not gonna be as efficient in the work that I'm trying to do um, as I could be in a place that like allowed me a little bit more like human dignity um, because there are so many different industries, companies and spaces that you can do whatever the work you're called to do is. Um, and so it's kind of like on you to figure out how to find the spaces where you're going to be most effective. Um, and I think a lot of people just get comfortable where they are and try to do the best they can in the space that they're in. And they stop like kind of pushing forward into finding the right industry or the right company or the right balance for themselves. And I think that ends up sort of diminishing sometimes what they got into whatever industry they got into for. Um, it just diminishes their their overarching you know personal mandate which for me is to like build a better place you know like do what i can in any direction i can you know i have access to and if i'm so exhausted and burnt out that i've just lost a big part of the the passion that i have for this then i've kind of let myself down i've gotten to this great position but i also am not able to really uh, leverage it in the way that I would have wanted when I worked so hard to get to this position. So what's, what's the point, you know? So yeah, there's, there's that burnout is a huge issue. I think, uh, especially in the pandemic, we're seeing a lot of change. Um, when it comes to workers demanding uh, better spaces for them to work. And so maybe there is some optimism in that sense. Um, can you tell us maybe about your goals for the next, let's say five to 10 years? What do you see yourself doing? You know, what, where are you headed? Are you still going in all of the same directions? Yeah, I mean, um, at this point, uh, communications, international communications for organizations that I really believe are doing good quality work is more gonna be my focus. I see myself in five to 10 years sort of working my way up into uh, positions where I'm able to sort of, uh, to, to have like the most influence to with clarity, you know, be able to make the world a better place. Um, so it's more the international scope of like international NGOs or UN agencies, uh, places that I can really believe in the culture um, that's happening within those organizations and also 
the impact that that work has on as many people as possible. So I think uh, I so appreciate the opportunity that I've had in media and journalism. And that's given me like a really good understanding of a lot of things. Um, and now it's a really valuable skill set in a lot of organizations that are really struggling to get their message out there in a way that is clear and intelligible to uh, you know the, the wider audience people outside of the spaces that they typically operate in and it's become kind of essential that the general public be in on the ground floor of how some of these institutions operate and the kind of work that they're doing and so there's like a really huge growth space right now um, to be someone who like knows how to get messages across to everybody, regardless of their background or their education level, um, fairly complicated um, issues. And so I'm seeing like a lot of opportunities right now that it's like, okay, so I'm sort of still in the process of adapting to being communications instead of being in journalism. Um, but so far it's been like pretty rewarding and I do see myself moving further down on that, that road. And I'm sure you will. It's very admirable, the work that you do. Um, I don't know if you want to you wanna, you wanna make a closing statement or if you have any last words on the subject uh, of activism, community journalism, and making uh, the world a better place, right? Yeah. Um, last words. I mean, something that I think of a lot, and one of the main problems I think uh that allows so so many people to be put in a really bad position in society and so many things that are allowed to continue to happen um i really feel like there's this unfortunate confusion between being a nice person and being a good person i see it over and over again so many people are very nice and so many people really want and i think people are just they're very um they, people in general lean toward justice, morality, goodness, and ensuring everyone has the right to safety and dignity. People just, that's, that's what everyone wants. But unfortunately, I feel like people want to be seen as nice people by everyone. And that includes the individuals that will harm or exploit those that they have access to. And so while everyone's really uncomfortable whenever something's happening that is unjust, their desire to be viewed as nice people just sort of overtakes this desire for justice and they don't wanna make waves and they don't wanna upset anyone and they don't wanna be seen as possibly misunderstanding a situation and they don't wanna get involved, you know? And, and these nice people end up advocating for the kind of silence that allows bullies, abusers, and negative things to continue um, in our society. And it's so, it, it's so important to just let go of this idea of being viewed as nice when bad things are happening to good people and be willing to be seen as the bad person because the person that you are calling out or the structures that you're disrupting are going to hate you. <laughs> They're going to really resent you and you're going to become the enemy to them because you've taken away some of the space that they used to have to operate in the way that they did. And you have to be willing to be disliked or downright hated and viewed as like this negative force and this enemy and, you know, be targeted in 
to the limit that they're able to do so um, for standing up against them. And in journalism, this happened again and again. I remember I would walk through the door and I'd have a senior journalist all happy and excited. Oh my God, these people at this company hate you. Cause like, I've like just written a horrible story about how they tried to cover up something awful. And now the entire company hates me specifically, you know, and uh, like, just got to, you got to get comfortable with it. Like this stuff, it shouldn't be allowed to stand. And um, it's easier to look the other way and everyone can like you, but nothing's going to change unless you're willing to be the person who's hated by those who are getting away with things. So um, I know as women, we're trained to be nice and to have people like us and that that's going to protect us. And, and that's going to give us some kind of benefit in our lives and society. And I can say that it doesn't. It typically will mark you for, uh, it's like a beacon that people will use against you if they've identified that you're really tethered to this idea of being a nice person and being seen as a good person by others. They'll exploit that and use it to manipulate you. It's really, it's worth shedding the idea that, you know, other people's opinions of you are of any value. Just be clear about who you are and what you are and be comfortable with bad people disliking you, you know, because that means you're doing something right. I love that. That is absolutely true. You know, I stand by those words. It's difficult as women to you know, stand by ourselves and, and declare ourselves in a world that tells us we need to change everything about ourselves in order to be liked. Right. Mm -hmm. So I definitely appreciate this. Um, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for taking the time and speaking with us today. Um, and yeah, we look forward to continue to witness your your achievements and and everything else that you do. So thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Well, nice to meet you too. And uh, good luck with everything. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. We also want to personally thank Alicia for participating in this episode of Listening Beyond. We also want to encourage anyone who has ever lived or faced any gender-based violence or injustices to speak up. Um, as Alicia mentioned, it is extremely important um, for collectively and individually to speak up on those issues. So this episode was produced by Audrey and Veronica. Again, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Listening Beyond. Continue listening to explore other stories of people making change in their communities. Merci d'avoir écouté cet épisode de Listening Beyond. Continuez à écouter pour explorer d'autres histoires de personnes qui apportent des changements dans leur communauté. This podcast is produced by the students in SCPA 352, Community and Local Activism in the School of Community and Public Affairs at Concordia University in Montreal. Music by Ketza, supervised by Dr. Anna Sheftel. The School of Community and Public Affairs Student Association generously provided funding for this project. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a rating or sharing with friends.